In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. No thing makes God happy. He simply is happy. By virtue of his very being, he is happiness itself. And insofar as he exists, which we know he does, and insofar as he is who he is, which we know he is, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he possesses a joy that surpasses anything you and I can imagine. And it can't be taken from him. And this interior stability which God possesses has a sobering consequence for the way in which we should pray and contemplate about our relation to him. It's namely this. We cannot change God. Anything we do can neither increase nor decrease the beatitude that the Trinity enjoys. Our value, to speak of it in those terms, to God and his actions toward us are different than what we see in our day-to-day lives, our human interactions, and then also what we see in history with the ancient religions, the way they talk about their gods. So you can think of Zeus, Pluto, Jupiter. All of these gods, whether in the Greek or Roman tradition, and even outside of that, have one thing in common. They're needy. They need something from their subjects. And you see it in the mythology. The gods are impetuous. They're manipulative. And their emotions are easily roused. And they seek to gain for themselves as much honor and sacrifice from their subjects, whether the Romans or the Greeks. And their antics resemble those we see in dictators or codependent relationships. Many people in this life are misled about what true happiness consists in. And they'll go great lengths to gain it, to wrestle it away from others. God, however, is not like this. He's not needy. He has everything he needs, which is himself. And yet we see him go to great lengths in Scripture, whether he's dealing with his rebellious Israel, as we heard in the first reading, or converting Paul on the road to Damascus, or simply just what we hear in these parables. He is portrayed almost like a mad lover. That's what St. Catherine of Siena described him as. It's, it's as if he's so in need, he's just going to go after everyone. But that's not the full story. And I think we have to keep in mind the God's immutability, the fact that he is just happy in himself and doesn't need anything from us and doesn't stand to gain anything from us. And when Christ comes and gives his life, 
when he comes and he teaches us his doctrine in these parables, these three parables, we can begin to see that reality, which is creation gives nothing to God that he doesn't already possess. So we have the sheep, the coin, and the sun. And there's a consistency throughout these three parables. And it's interesting that uh, the way St. Luke sets it up is he says, Christ told them this parable. And then we get these three. So they're connected. So let's, let's go through them. The shepherd who goes in search of the lost sheep, leaving the 99, is, un- is unlike any other shepherd. We see that Christ is the one who seeks the sinner who bleats out for help. But do we realize how much this contrasts with the reality of shepherding? He leaves the 99 in the desert to go for the lost sheep. A shepherd that does that is not going to have just one lost sheep on his hand. He's going to have 10, 20, 30. It doesn't make economic sense. The shepherd isn't treating the sheep as a sheep. There's something kind of crazy going on here. And likewise, the parable of the lost coin, the money is pitifully small. The drachma, as it's referred to, is something less than a quarter. We'll call it a dime. And we hear a story of a woman sweeping her whole house, tearing through it with one thing in mind, of finding this lost dime. And not only is there a certain oddity in that, when she finds it, she invites everyone she knows to come and rejoice over the measly dime that she found. There's something disproportionate in her love for the, for the dime and what it offers her. It's the image of the, the mad, crazy love that God has for each one of us, and especially for the sinner. And when we go to the prodigal son, I think we see a little bit clearer in the story. Um, it's familiar, and you may begin to recall to yourself, to recollect when that parable took on a personal and particular meaning. You know, I, I hope you know this, that Christ gives us this parable to teach us about his love for you. And so he speaks of us and he speaks to us in this parable. And it, it's so familiar that we can begin to sort of overlook the, the details that are there. And so hopefully we can begin to slow down and just consider how depraved um, and how unvaluable the prodigal son is. Right? He, he takes his father's property before he passes away and he just goes to a distant country. You know, it's like 
You've probably heard it before. It's the equivalent of saying, drop dead, Dad. Give me what's due to me, and I'm going to go off. What a deep cut to that relationship. What a severance. And when he goes away and he has, you know, all of his money, he just squanders it. He just loses all of it and throws himself into a humiliating life, a sinful life. And so he's without honor. And then cutting even deeper to the covenant that he has with God, he begins to tend swine. So he no longer has ritual purity. He's not even fit to worship God. He, the prodigal son, is stripped of every external sign of value and dignity. But the one thing he does when is he acknowledges that about himself, right? He's, he's, he's on the, the road to repentance when he's coming back to the Father, when he's returning. And the only thing he brings back with him is his poverty, his filth, and himself. The Father does, doesn't stand to gain any natural good there. I mean, there's no power the Son brings back to him. There's no wealth. There's certainly no honor. And it's hard to even imagine what pleasure there's there that, the, that you know, really the Son gives to the Father. But what we hear is this Father waiting and watching for his Son and hoping for his Son to rise on the horizon and come back to him. When the son comes, he, he gives nothing. But the, the father still lavishes you know, his riches upon him, puts a robe on him, a ring, sandals, rejoices, offers a banquet. The father who already gave what was due to his son, watching him squandered it, still is giving. This is about God our Father and his love towards us. He wants us to receive this gift of life, of redemption, his very son, and to enter into the banquet of celebration, which is nothing less than what we're about to do here on the altar and receiving not the fattened calf, but the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the only begotten Son of God. And the the language also of the Father's rejoicing is that the Son was dead and is now alive. And when the sinner is dead in mortal sin, has severed that relationship with God the Father, but yet goes to the sacrament of confession and receives New life. When the sinner was dead and comes back to life 
God the Father rejoices in that, not because he's received anything that more to what he already enjoys, but simply that that one, his, his son, might be alive. And this is what he offers to us, is to, to love as he loves, to look out upon the world, not as something that we gain, but something that we rejoice in, that comes from the Father and is oriented to the Father. And so something we can do with this is when we come to the Eucharist, we can truly give thanks that God has given us new life. He offers it to those we know and that he ultimately is welcoming us into the banquet which is in heaven. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.